over time, the military services, they were independent. Then Goldwater Nichols made us interoperable. Then we became interdependent. And my big thing now is within the medical arena, we should be interchangeable. And by that, I mean, clinically, a surgeon can replace a surgeon without regard to what uniform they wear. Where they work is different, but the clinical skills are the same. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Dr. Joseph Caravallo to War Docs. Dr. Caravallo is a Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences graduate and is trained in nuclear medicine and cardiology. He performed operational assignments with Special Forces, the Rangers, and JSOC, in addition to commanding the 28th Combat Support Hospital. He also commanded two of the largest medical centers in military medicine, Walter Reed and Brook Army Medical Center. He went on to serve as a Joint Staff Surgeon. He currently is the President and CEO of the Henry M. Jackson Foundation. You can learn more about his bio on warnoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about Dr. Caravallo's experiences and lessons learned in operational medicine assignments and in deployments. He also provides a behind-the-scenes look at leading at the highest strategic levels in Army medicine, as well as the joint staff level. He provides important insights of how the military health system can sustain a ready medical force while also taking care of all healthcare beneficiaries. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major General, Dr. Joseph Carvalho to Wardocs. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Glad to be here. General Carvalho, you were raised in Kaneohe, Hawaii, not too far from where my co-host grew up in Kailua. Tell us about how you wound up studying mathematics at Gonzaga University on an ROTC scholarship and then pursued a medical degree from the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. So I grew up in a blue-collar family. No one immediately around me who was in the military. So in Hawaii, there's military all over the place, but I didn't know anything about that. I was a junior in high school. I went to St. Louis High School, and I had an incident where the brother was scolding me for some reason. But at the end of it, he asked me somewhat rhetorically if I knew that I could be anything I wanted to be in this world. And my parents may have asked me that before or suggested that to me, but I was primed to hear it. And at that point, I knew I wanted to help people. And one thing led to another without knowing anything. I thought I'd like to be a doctor. I convinced my folks to let me go away to school. I was one of those kids that wanted to leave home to go to school. I remember sitting in homeroom every day in in Kaimaki overlooking Waikiki Beach and watching the planes take off and thinking one day I got to get on get on one of those planes uh, although I'd never left the island before going off to college when I picked a school I uh, knew that I wanted to get away I knew it was going to be expensive so it was going to be on the west coast I figured I already knew about the the weather so I didn't want to be in southern California I thought it would be one strike to be 2500 miles away I thought a large school would be a second strike, so I looked for a small school. Small school, I figured would be denominational, so might as well be my denomination, so Catholic school. And uh, Gonzaga popped up, 
I didn't know anything about Washington or Eastern Washington. I thought it'd be cool to see lakes and snow and trains. And so Gonzaga popped up and uh, gave it a shot. I was pre-med. I, I worked in the summers at Dole Cannery, like all kids did in my age, and saved every penny, worked midnight shift and saved maybe $1,200, got to school and realized that would only pay room and board for one semester. Again, my, my dad was a policeman. My mom was what we call at the time a hotel maid, a waitress, and worked in a, a cantina. And I couldn't do that to them. This is probably why ROTC runs barbecues in, in the first week of uh, school. I joined them for the lunch. I, I thought about what they offered, the opportunity for a three-year scholarship. I thought this would allow me to pay for school. I wouldn't have to do work study because I had to study so hard. And uh, so I just went for it. And I remember thinking, oh, this way I'll pay for school, join the army afterwards. And if I die, my mom gets a, gets a flag. Is kind of a young man's uh, kind of thinking. I'll tell you, within a week or two of being in ROTC, I fell in love with the idea of being an army officer. And that really was a secret sauce for my career is that that drove everything. I went from really wanting to be a physician to really wanting to be an army officer. And I hoped I would get into medical school. And then with mathematics, I was good at math. They're very competitive pre-med. That was my only B in the first couple of years was in biology. And so I switched to mathematics because I didn't want to be in such a competitive realm. So math major, pre-med, ROTC, and then the Jesuit experience at Gonzaga. That was a great, great liberal arts experience for me to prepare me for, uh, for my Army career. So you went to USU's, uh, so you did achieve your, your dream of training to become a doctor, and you chose medicine as your medical specialty. What was behind that choice and what factors played into making that decision to go the medicine pathway? Before I started, I, when I was in ROTC, I did go to ranger school and got hurt. I did enough of ranger school, so I didn't have to delay my commission, but uh, I didn't get through ranger school. And that was the first disappointment, big disappointment in my life and kind of set me up for how to see life going forward. So I went to USU. I say that because when I went to USU, a big part on my head was to go back to ranger school. So I tried to go to ranger school and I was like, a medical student. And because of this ROTC thing, I was telling you about army officer, my focus was on doing my internship so I could go to the field. And so nothing hit me. I knew I didn't want to do surgery. Sorry guys. But so I knew I was going to be in a non-surgical specialty, but that was about it. So I did a transitional internship. And then it was while I was in the field that I decided to do medicine. I wanted to be an expert, and it seemed to me that medicine allowed me to have that expertise and then to subspecialize further in whatever came about later, should I decide to do that. So following your time after completing your medicine residency, you spent some time as a staff internist, but then decided that you wanted to undergo fellowship training, and you did that in nuclear medicine and cardiology. Tell us about that decision and tell us about the nuclear medicine and cardiology fellowships, what those mean? I think we'll go back to this a little bit later, but so after internship, I did a special forces GMO assignment for three years. That's when I decided to do medicine. So I did medicine in El Paso. And while I was doing it, I found cardiology intriguing. And like probably every person who picks a specialty, there's an individual that they identify with. They then identify with that person's specialty and 
could see themselves emulating that individual and uh, can see the end goal and not just the hurdles for that. So I wanted to be a cardiologist. I felt the calling to do that. I applied for cardiology from my residency and didn't get selected. And so I went back as a staff internist for a couple of years and then did a ranger stint for a couple of years after that. At that point, I realized I needed to get back to clinical medicine. I was accepted for Army Command and Staff College, which I was called ILE now. I talked to the, the HRC person. I said, what happens if I do this? And they said, we'll assign you as a division surgeon. And I just spent two years at the Rangers, a year at the Armed Forces Staff College. And then to be a division surgeon for another two years, I thought I couldn't do that. So I turned that down and didn't think I, I had enough academic stamina to do cardiology straight away. I had done a nuclear medicine rotation as an internist. We did a lot of thalliums then. And I thought, well, there's some cardiology to this. And it seemed kind of intriguing to me. And it was within the radiology realm. And I thought that was going to be, frankly, an easier path for me back into academic medicine. So I applied, got accepted, and then asked my wife if, if I did this for two years. And then I'd be, have to be staff for two years. And I remember saying, if I can't look myself in the mirror at that point, would you allow me to apply for cardiology at that point? Luckily for me, she agreed. And so that was how and why I did nukes first at, at Walter Reed, stayed on his staff, and then, and then applied and did the cardiology fellowship, which I started, by the way, at age 40 and made colonel while I was a cardiology fellow. So I tell folks, it's not, that wasn't my dream as a colonel still asking permission is a bathroom kind of thing, but that's how it all played out. So let's rewind a little bit and go back to that operational time that you served as a general medical officer. Uh, you were in Okinawa with the 1st Battalion, 1st Special Forces Group. Tell us about that assignment and any memorable experiences. And did you feel like you were prepared coming out of a transitional internship to do what they were asking you to do? I was probably as prepared as I could be, right? Transitional, little of everything, but I really... I really didn't know that much. I joked that I'd have a patient with a right knee pain. And so I'd call the you know, the Navy orthopedic surgeon and ask <laughs> the right knee pain. And you have to be patient. You have to wait for them and everything. You kind of present the case over the phone. They tell you what to do. And you thank them profusely. And then you see the next patient. They have left knee pain. I'm calling right back. Hey, now I left knee pain. What do I do? But I don't think I killed anybody. And I think that was the best thing best assignment I could have had. If I were king, I'd make everyone be a GMO for a little bit. In the army, that greens you. It gives you a sense of why you had the privilege of wearing a uniform. I screwed up big time as a staff officer from a guy who, who thought he knew how to be a staff officer from that ROTC experience. But at the end of the day, coming back in to work the next day, I was a captain like every other captain and screwed up like every other captain. And ended up doing, I think, a pretty good job as a, a staff officer. It was a pretty cool job. While there, I'd gone to flight surgeon course, went to scuba school because we had dive ODAs. I went to the flight surgeon course because we had HALO and HAYHO uh, or military freefall ODAs. And then actually, back then when you could, I asked, uh, requested, and it was approved to go to the SF officer qualification course. So I got to do that before I completed my three-year tour there. And additionally, it was to me surrounded by 
than a bunch of senior Vietnam vets. And I remember asking them what it was like in Vietnam and every other country, as you might imagine, that they were, that was in addition to Vietnam, that they, they couldn't tell much about. And, and I remember being just enamored and listening to their stories and then wondering to myself if I would have courage to be as brave as uh, they worked relaying their stories to me if I were in combat. And I really, really loved every one of those folks. I learned how important the SF community is. I learned how important the SF medic is, that when I recommended something, every one of them would say, thanks, doc. Let me check with my NCO to see if that's a good idea. And I was annoyed by that until I realized really what I was dealing with is uh, their NCO was a trusted agent. And I was just the medical officer. And it wasn't until I had come back from the Q course that I was now a trusted agent with them. I love that experience. Many, many countries. It was before the war that we recently got out of. So we worked on the special forces mission of foreign internal defense. So a lot of what we call medcaps in, in many countries where we purposely uh, went out wearing our green berets so that the young folks that we cared for would remember us and remember the Americans many years later, should we come back under a different situation. So I, I felt like those, those officers, NCOs, were doing real-world national strategic work in many countries while being at peace, knowing that no one in America knows what they're doing. Great mission, great group of Americans that I stay in touch with, with them still to this day. Write us some contrast then to that assignment you had with the 75th Range Regiment. Tell us about any memorable experiences you had there and what was the difference you found in providing care for Special Forces soldiers versus the Ranger Regiment soldiers. When I was a, a medical student, I kind of had this plan in my mind that I would spend some time with SF and then some time with Rangers, some time with JSOC. I just wanted to do all the special ops thing, but be the medical officer with those guys. So, Wayne, before I was with the 75th Rangers, while I was an internist at Fort Benning, I told you about, I was an augmentee with ASOC, with their medical augmentation unit at Fort Bragg. And that was during Desert the Shield. The satellite beepers were new. I'd gone on a run. My wife said, hey, your beeper went off and it says, come to work. Uh, I asked her to drop me off at the airport and I flew to Fort Bragg and we prepared for what ended up being a desert storm. And so it was tough on my wife because there were no systems, right? I was a single person flying out. And uh, so no programs in, in support of her. So I feel blessed to have, to have a, a spouse that is strong as, as she was. So I had done that for a year. And then I went to the Ranger Regiment. I applied, interviewed and for the job, and then was selected, pretty excited, and then found out that I was the only in, uh, person who interviewed for the job. So I thought, well, if they didn't take me, they would have opted to go with nobody than, than me. So I, I wasn't sure if I was a, a stud or not. It was I had no competition, apparently. So I showed up and with the Rangers. The big thing is the Ranger tab. That's, that's the, that is a big thing. <laughs> so I showed up not only with no Ranger tab, but I had the SF tab, which is like the Antichrist tab but to those guys, it seems. So that, that was a, a tough, tough go. I went through what, what's called ROPE, a Ranger Orientation Program. And you end up with a 12-mile road march. I realized I wasn't going to make it in time. My feet, I'm full of blisters and everything. So I said, I'm not going to make it. I just got to stop. And they were looking at me like, you can't stop your ranger. I said, there's no way I'm going to start jogging now. And I said, I'm pretty sure you don't want your surgeon to die. 
So I said, I just got to pull off. And within five minutes before it got back to the regiment, I was not quite persona non grata, but I was, I was like, you go back out tomorrow. And it's like, well, you haven't seen my feet, the type of thing. But I went right back out and, and got it done. But it is a, a tough guy mentality, right? That's where I learned task condition standards that drives the day. I loved it, right? So Wayne, you're right. It was different than SF. SF was real world, strategic level work. Nobody knows about it. The Rangers were preparing for the Pro Bowl every time somebody bad sneezed. And no one knew about it, but we were preparing complex mission sets. And because we were the regiment, we were preparing for every battalion as they rotated in their in their readiness posture to do it. I ended up going to ranger school. I tell folks that's the toughest thing I've ever done four times in my life. I was invited to restart a couple of times. And I felt like I was like the docent at a museum where I, I bring the new crew in and say, here's what we do here. Here's what we do here. I saw it so many times. But I ended up finishing, finishing ranger school at age 34 as a major. And that taught me short of combat, which uh, I give everything to those in combat, that, that when you feel like you're at your, your wit's end for whatever reason, you can always pull from within to, to get after it. So two different missions, wonderful folks. So you had the opportunity to command the 28th Combat Support Hospital, as well as the 44th Medical Command Rear Detachment. What was it like to command a combat support hospital during times of really pretty high operational tempo, tempo in Southwest Asia with OIF and OEF? And what were the significant challenges and what was the unit able to accomplish when, when you were there? So the 20th cash, I kind of lucked into it. For your listeners who may be thinking, I'd like to be a general officer I asked them to start thinking about that when they're major, because there's certain things one should do, checks that one should make. And so I thought I had a pretty studly career as a, as a young guy. I got selected two years early to lieutenant colonel. And so I thought I was tracking pretty well. So I was a staff cardiologist in Hawaii. And I don't know if you remember how consultants would come out and talk to the, to the uh, medical corps officers. And I remember asking, say, hey, how come, you know, I seem like I, I think I have a pretty good record. How come I never get selected for or even make the alternate list for war college? And, and so the guy looked at me and says, oh, it looks like a couple of years ago you declined consideration. I said, well, I was in the middle of fellowship. wasn't going to leave fellowship. And he said, yeah, that's a lifetime declination. I was like, oh, yeah, that was well, you got to select me. But it's hard to make that case when I was the idiot who couldn't read the form, right, the correctly. So I say, hey, can you change that? Because I would kind of confidentially, I'd, I'd like to try to make general officer. And I remember that guy say, saying, well, we can, we can do this work college thing. Unlikely you'll get selected. But even if you do, there's no way you're going to make general officer. <laughs> so I left there bummed out. And, and then I thought, wait a minute, who's this colonel telling another colonel he's not going to make general, right? When a general tells me I'm not going to make general, then I'll, then I'll stop. Until they kick me out of the army, then I'll believe it kind of thing. I don't know why I thought like that. So it, I told him, I said, I'd like to leave cardiology and, and pursue administrative executive medicine. I'd, I'd like to see how this goes. Now, the big risk, of course, is you stop doing cardiology you are no longer employable as a cardiologist, right, coming out. So again, I asked my wife if she would allow me this run and see how, see how it goes. So I got to go to Fort Bragg to fill a unplanned vacancy as a DCCS. And then later that year, I came up with an alternate list for command. And so I went to Bragg. And within the year, 
luckily for me, I, I offered that alternate list to command the 28th cache. I didn't have to leave uh, Fort Bragg. So that was my first command. Uh, and I, I was given that opportunity. Greatest privilege, right? The essence of officership is to command, really, as part of ultimate the consummation of leadership. So I joke, right? The 28th cash is uh, the uh, China Dragons. I'm I'm Chinese Puerto Rican dude, and uh, I, I tell folks that the general officer selected me because after PT test, he saw that I was half Chinese and and half Dragon. So I took the command. What's interesting is the command had just come back from what would become OIF-1, right? So there was really no history of war except my team, my command was coming to me and I'm the guy receiving them who is not deployed. And I remember asking them what war was like. Now, you remember when I was SF Battalion Surgeon, I was asking the Vietnam guys what war was like. And it dawned on me that what I was asking 40-year-olds who were responding to me in the early 80s was telling me, they were telling me what war was like when they were the age of the 28th cash guys that I was commanding in 2004. And so one was the sequel and then the prequel of, of command. And that was a challenge, right? I feel like I had some experience leading leaders, which is not, it's not intuitive when you're a DCCS to lead folks who are, aren't in your specialty, who, who are confident in their own skills that they can lead themselves. To be able to lead that is a skill, but then now to lead a group of soldiers uh, who had just returned from combat and you're not a combat veteran was also a challenge on my leadership skills. I think I was able to keep them motivated in what ended up being between two combat deployments. And unfortunately for me, as I was leaving, they they were called to deploy again. And so I had asked the commanding general if I could stay another year to take them to combat. And in fact, uh, they said, you make a good point, but we're going to bring the new guy in early so that he'll have some time with them and he'll take them to war. So that was kind of my life story. I kept missing the opportunity to serve our country in, in combat. While I was at the 28th cash, then the 44th also deployed, which left the rest of the subordinate commands under the 44th without a commanding general, which is why I had the simultaneous command of the 28th cache and the 44th MedCom rear. Uniquely, during that, the commanding general did bring me up to Iraq for a couple of months. So that was that was of a great mentorship opportunity that this general had given me just to be able to, to check the block that I had a combat experience going forward. So after that, you were able to have another experience as a senior medical officer in a combat environment as the senior medical officer for the multinational forces and Corps Iraq. Tell us a little bit about that job and some memorable experiences from that time. After the cash, I had a stint as a USASOC surgeon. So that completed my seven years in special operations and then moved to the 18th Airborne Corps, who was then going to Iraq. And while I was there is when I came up on the list to make a, a brigadier general. So I pinned on while I was in Iraq. The reason I was simultaneously the MNCI and MNFI surgeon was, as you may recall, Brian Allgood had passed away a year or, or a little more before that, and they didn't backfill behind him. So the MNFI position was left unfilled. And I had 
lobbied my commanding general or, or General Austin at the time that I could fill both. So MNCI had operational control over the ground forces, primarily army forces throughout the, the theater of operations. And MNFI, led by General Petraeus at the time, was the commanding general over all the military in the area of operations. So I would go back and forth on a up-armored bus between the airport and the green zone, between two families, if you will. So I had staffs at both, and I would go between the two. So one memorable experience, maybe a kind of a, it's a bummer for me, but when I got there, all the division surgeons would come to me and say, what do we do about these, about the Purple Heart? Because we have commanders who say, I don't see blood or bones. I'm not going to authorize a Purple Heart. And they were concerned about what we were calling concussions at the time. And we're still trying to figure out what is this TBI thing and how do you, how do you account for that? So as the, the senior medical person for, for the ground, I went through all their regulations, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps. And called out the definition for or the what was required for a purple heart. And I may forget the details now, but obviously had to be in combat, had to be directly related to enemy action, combat action. But it, they gave the example is it could include if you're running from indirect fire, let's say, and you fell and you broke your leg, that would be still related. It wouldn't have to be you got shot is the only criteria kind of thing. And the third was you had to be seen by a medical officer documented along the line. So I put that on a policy and I feel like I have a, the command of the English language, but I learned since then to run everything by a lawyer to make sure that they go the extra mile and not necessarily be concise, but be super explicit. Well, anyway, I put this thing out that a couple of things I said, these are the criteria. And if you don't have these three things, the, the troop may not be eligible for Purple Heart. Now, I'll point this out to you now that the word may, in my use, was it's possible, whereas it was I will learn later that people took it to mean will not. And then the other thing I wrote in there is, uh, as you do this review, technically, if, you, if they're all met, one can say, hey, you definitely met the criteria. This is not a vote, right? You met the criteria for a Purple Heart. I said, but you're not the decision authority. So I said, do not tell the, the troop what you think about this. So those two points came back that later, much later when I was at, at Bamsey, I got a call from Politico asking for comments about me changing the criteria for the Purple Heart. And, and I called Medcom. What do I do? And they said, don't respond. I'm like, dude, you're leaving me out to hang here on this thing. And it was kind of a painful, painful thing. My sister called that out of the blue. And I said, oh, great to talk to you. I said, wait a minute, why are you calling me? She goes, oh, you didn't see, right, the, the NPR piece. <laughs> so I checked it out and I'm, I'm reading it. And then I got flamed by all these troops like that I don't understand. Put me out and get the, my head blown up and then I'll understand it. So it was completely misconstrued. And then at the very end, there's a timeline, right, 1780 something, uh, George Washington uh, kind of approves the Purple Heart, blah, blah, blah. 1986, Caravaggio changes the Purple Heart. What the heck? So that was, that was a, a bummer. I'll give you a positive experience. The trauma czar in Iraq was excellent. So he sat next to me at MNCI. We saw temperatures of casualties coming back to Ibn Sina and everywhere throughout drop by 0.1 degree. He walked over, came to me, he says, 
We got to keep those temperatures up. This is the middle of summer. They're not using the space blankets. The troops will become coagulopathic as they drop core temperature. I was able to call out from my position of authority to all the division surgeons to get that word out. Don't worry about ambient temperature, space blanket on everyone. Got their temperatures back up. And we're able to do many things like that on the fly to help do everything we can in a coordinated effort to maximize the chances of our wounded troops surviving. I think that's great that just a small observation can be changed into policy for right. for a lot of combat casualties. Right. So, but let's dive into the BAMSI experience. So you were the commander of BAMSI, Brook Army Medical Center, and the Southern Regional Medical Command. Tell us about what it was like to command a level one trauma center, and especially during a time period where it was receiving wartime casualties. What were your biggest challenges during that BAMSI command? It was an excellent juxtaposition, right? I had just come from a 15-month deployment. I wasn't the guy stopping bleeding, but I was overseeing the healthcare uh, at a time when there were more casualties than normal. That's why we went to that 15-month deployment. And then to come back and be now at the receiving end of these casualties coming through Lanshul and then on onto uh, Bamsi, I was able to, you remember how I was like, I'm the, the odd, odd man out leader. Now I followed Jim Gilman, who had spent decades at Brook Army Medical Center. And I'm the guy, also a cardiologist, but had never been at Brook before, never been assigned to Fort Sam before. And people were very anxious that this snake eater was coming in to be the commander, et cetera. But I, so I leveraged what I could and I, and I, and I tried to instill in them the mission and purpose of what we're doing for all these casualties coming, coming through. Bamsi was my best personal experience because that was the last time I, I commanded, to me, a tactical unit, the trauma center, the burn center, but every, everything. So I got to be the guy that would walk through the wards. I'd come in the middle of the night. It was one, it was wonderful experience. And at the same time, Southern region. At first, I was Great Plains, which was the Great Plains states. And then the general schoolmaker combined us with the Southeast region. So I was like from Florida to Arizona, and then from Montana down through Texas, right? That big swath of the United States, Kentucky on the, on down, Puerto Rico and all of that. So it was like I was coaching Little League, but my son was on the team, right? So I had to be very careful that Bamsi didn't get all the attention that the other MTFs also had had equal e- equal favor. So the one thing that, that a couple of things that, ha- that happened, Doug, you were involved with this uh, with me, but we noticed uh, in morning report that Jim Fickey was saying, boy, we're getting a lot more multiple limb amputees. And so I called uh, my buddies at Walter Reed and they were seeing the same thing. Talked to Launchstool, talked to John Holcomb. He sent me a note that said, I'm looking at, at three Marines and a soldier. And among the four of them, I'm looking at two legs and one testicle. So we had, it was like, what the heck is going on? We thought we had this thing down. We knew what the signature wound of the war was. And that was burns and TBI, right? The cool contra-collision, multi or high degree burns over a large parts of the body as you're thrown around in, in the vehicle. And now we're seeing, but minimum, only like one or two multi-limb amp- amputees. And so General Schoolmaker asked me to put together a task force. And we had Doug as our urology consultant on, on there. It was a great team. And we sat down and we, we said, what are we seeing? And what do you guys think this is? And then what can we do about it? And then we ended up realizing 
that what I just described was a mounted casualty from an IED explosion where you get thrown around the vehicle, vehicle catches fire before they can get you out, you have big time burns. But you didn't, you didn't lose your limb in the, in the process. And then we're finding out that in Afghanistan, that folks were walking in what we call a ranger file, where each troop would wa- watch where the troop in front of them would step, and they would step in that same spot, knowing that there is no IED because that guy's leg didn't just blow off. And when we saw injuries, it was the forward leg uh, was blown off, the back leg was mangled, the forward arm was at least mangled, and there were abdominal or pelvic injuries associated with it. So you can imagine someone with a long arm stepping on it forward, forward leg stepping on it and blowing it off their, their hand and, and what have you. No TBI, no burns, but multi, multi-limb amputations. So we called it the DCBI or dismounted complex blast injury, and then set, set aside time to figure out how, how to treat the physical injuries, but also in a whole person approach that would help them not only recover, but rehabilitate, reintegrate back into society, if not their unit per se. So I was very proud of what the work has done there. And then one, one last story is my aide and I were sitting at the San Antonio airport ready to go to Fort Sill to visit an MTF. And we got a call that there was a shooting at Fort Hood. And we thought about it for a second, canceled that flight, got in our car, and then drove drove to Fort Hood from San Antonio and got there shortly after that mass casualty event. As we're driving up, we're learning that it was a physician. It's like, oh my goodness. And not only a physician, but a fellow alum from USU. And so we did what we needed to do at Fort Hood. I visited with all the troops. They're all over, all over the place. And we drove around to, to see them all. The assailant was injured as he was in a hospital there for Fort Hood. And then not long thereafter, the decision was made to uh, bring Hassan back to Fort Sam Houston and for us to take care of him at, at Bamsi. So I w- hearken back to my experience at in Iraq when we had all these MTS, but some MTS were detainee hospitals. And I remember the troops saying, hey, sir, I hate being at this hospital. I want to be at the 82nd. Why am I taking care of detainees and all? And I said, 82nd, that's easy stuff, right? The medevacs, all that straightforward, whatever. That's so easy. You got the hardest job, right? You got strategic level effort. What you're doing for these guys as they recover, they'll go out and they won't do this anymore. They're going to realize that America is a good team. So Thank goodness you're there. You go 80 second next time. So I use that same strategy with my guys at Bamsi. We ended up building a, kind of like those airlock kinds of doors where you, one door would open and then the other stayed locked. And when this closed, then that other door opened kind of thing. And we built a, enclosed a, an ICU room within the ICU. So you couldn't see it from the outside that there was another, another room. And then I only took volunteers to man this ICU. And then I watched them closely, like I did in this detainee hospital, to make sure that they never went too far, that we got them before they fell off the edge and did something that anger would have made them do. And it could have been, in my mind, as simple as pinching off a a pain med drip or leaning on an injury or something that they know from the oath that they took that they would never do for another human. So we talked a lot about human frailty, that regardless of what you think about the individual, and you can hate what happened, but it was human frailty that led to that, that led them to believe that, 
let him to do that, and that we got to see past that. And and early on, I didn't know if this was an individual event, if there if this was a coordinated event. I didn't know if someone was going to come in and kill him before he had a chance to speak. So it was very, I was very proud of how secretive we had. I maybe went too crazy on that, but we checked air ducts and secured everything. And we gave this guy a, a code and then we coded the code so that no one would be, could inadvertently fall in on, on this individual. And we, we had him there for months. And I got to tell you, I, I, I feel strong that many people didn't know we had him in the hospital. So I was very proud of that as well. And when he was well enough, months later, and we sent him back to Colleen, we did that through a big middle-of-the-night mission, multiple aircraft, so no one knew which one he was on type of thing. So I was very proud of how we handled that. Most importantly, I'm proud of how we managed the Wounded Warriors. We had a ton of visitors to come and visit. I made sure that our, our troops were not like in fishbowls. CFI was hopping. Right, the burn center was hopping. The trauma center was was doing great work, and I talked to the new folks coming in every week, and I said, "Now, number one, I know you're a month ago we were pogs to you, right? We're just the medics, and I know you hate that you're here because, but the fact that you're here meant that you're injured or you're ill, and so because of that, I'm happy that you're here. I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to give you a lot of things." And it's going to feel like it's too much for you. But I want you to do this on behalf of all troops. I need you to take it because America needs to say thank you. And you got to do this for me. I said, we're going to help you heal. I'm going to tell you right now, at some point, after we fix your wings, I'm going to throw you out of the nest. So I need us to agree right now, right? Because if you get used to this, that is not the soldier I want you to be. I want you to kind of recover, enjoy everything while we have it, but let's be on the same journey that you're going to get back back on your feet going forward. So that was a very powerful experience for me. I'm very, very grateful. You know someone has a mathematics degree when they have a code for the code. That's <laughs> certainly a point there. But you then went to Walter Reed. So the two large hospitals, at least in Army medicine, are BMC and Walter Reed. What would you tell the average person if they were to ask you, what's the differences you perceived between Bamsey and Walter Reed since you commanded both? They're both wonderful institutions. I was partial to uh, Bamsey for our wounded warriors. What Walter Reed had is proximity to the Hill, proximity to the Pentagon, and excellent clinicians there. And I trained there. I trained there because I wanted to be the guy that saw everything, blue collar work, and just get it done. So I, I have an affinity. I'm an alum of Walter Reed. But for our wounded warriors, the reason I like Bamsey is it had a large ortho program and they had great residencies and fellowships right there at Bamsey. It had the University Medical Center nearby. It had the CFI on campus. It had a level one trauma center also there. And it had flat ground as opposed to the hills at Walter Reed. No snow like Walter Reed. Our guys would be easier for them to have an umbrella than to trudge through snow if they are trying to relearn how to walk. And I thought the cost of living was better. And then finally, after someone was in a hospital for months and months and months, San Antonio is the only place where the VA polytrauma center was in the same city 
as the military center. So the family didn't have to move as the troop moved from one facility to the next. Walter Reed would have to send them to Minnesota, Palo Alto, or Tampa. That was a major happening. So I thought the stars were aligned for San Antonio. And the people are wonderful, especially our burn patients. When they walk downtown, no one gawked at them. They, they were embraced. So I had that experience, uh, the great people of Texas. And not that it wasn't at Walter Reed, but I, I, I certainly was partial from a wounded warrior standpoint to what San Antonio offered. San Antonio's motto is Military City USA. That's right. And they're trying to trademark Military Medical City USA now. So you had a lot of time in operational medicine and then in fixed facility hospitals. Then you had the opportunity to kind of get into the realm of research in the military. And you're the commander of what was then known as the Army Medical Research and Materiel Command. Tell us a little about what that command did and why is research important to Army medicine? I think I'm like a a lot of medical corps officers that we don't even know that exists. And I, I really didn't know much about that. I got there and they briefed me on on how to move something through the FDA. I said, and I'm thinking while they're briefing me, I said, am I, is it too late to, to leave? But I was already assigned as a CG. I said, why are you guys briefed us like it's a Krebs cycle, right? It, why is this so complicated? And even if it's complicated, because they said, well, that's how it is. So even if it's complicated, don't, don't tell me it's that complicated. Dumb it down so that it's straightforward. And so I, building on everything I, I did, I learned the value of military medical research. And here's how I think about it now. The military, DOD thinks about all these warfighting domains. And and they think about it, that it's so important that they put a command commander against it. But four of them are physical, one's informational, and at least one untouched, right? So air, land, sea, space. And they said, well, we can find the informational space. So cyber command is there. What's left untouched is a human domain. So they are modernizing in the human domain, and we call it military medical research. And I am so proud of Army Medicine and what it does in this realm. At the time, it was $1.3 billion, global presence in almost every continent, and uh, conducting research that it was unique, requirements-driven for the warfighter at the speed the warfighter needed, in areas that other folks weren't interested. And I was so proud to be part of that, helping to move that along. So in 2015, you then became the Army Deputy Surgeon General and later finished your active duty career as the Joint Staff Surgeon and the Chief Medical Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Tell us about the position that you had being the Army Deputy Surgeon General and your most memorable experience. So being the DSG was like being the DCCS again, right? So it's like many things replayed over and again. I, I worked for the Surgeon General, Lieutenant General Horoho at the time. I, I think she's, she's a great leader, gave me the freedom of movement to help lead Army Medicine on her behalf in the areas that she had me work through. We started to talk about coming together. DAA-17 was starting to be a, a, a big thing and how were we really prepared to deploy as a single force. So I was very excited about being a DSG. I was in consideration for a certain general, didn't get selected, but as Nigel West got selected, that opened up the joint staff position. And I was privileged to be the army nominee and then got that position. So very, very fortunate for me to end my career on the joint staff. And I tell folks, it's like I died, went to heaven. And then St. Peter, I watched St. Peter pull one more acetate over the map. And it was was not 
army medicine. It was the joint force. And so it kind of my eyes opened from a guy who bled green up to that point that it is not that the army medicine is the best always and forever, but how can army medicine be the best for the joint force? So it kind of just changed my thinking completely. And over time, the military services, they were independent. Then Goldwater Nichols made us interoperable. Then we became interdependent. And my big thing now is within the medical arena, we should be interchangeable. And by that, I mean, clinically, a surgeon can replace a surgeon without regard to what uniform they wear. Where they work is different, but the clinical skills are the same. And I know that the boards are the same. We trained, I started at USU, we're the same. I ended on the joint staff, we're the same. So that's, I think, the secret sauce on how we will leverage a short, understaffed uh, medical forces of among the three services to fill the joint staff requirements going forward. So let the service own their domain augmented with the clinical specialists from the other services as needed going forward. I love the fact that I was on the joint staff. I feel like that was a great culmination. I started off as a battalion surgeon, ended up as a joint staff surgeon. I feel very privileged. So we're seeing more and more focus on joint with the Defense Health Agency. How do you think that's going and how could that jointness be improved in military medicine today? So no circling of the wagons approach. I think we should restart the MHS conference to pull everyone into one arena to talk about similar things. I think we should have this interchangeable mindset and we should be enterprise thinking in that regard. I remember telling the surgeons general, the only people who think about army medicine distinct from Navy medicine and Air Force medicine are you three people. Everyone on the outside, when they hear DOD medicine, they think it's one. And so if you want to be independent, then independently agree to the same thing all the time. But this idea of you want to be able to decide your equipment from that equipment doing the same mission is crazy. And so we got to get to that point. I think over time we'll get there. That's number one. I think DHA, they're in a tough spot, I think, because they have a health care delivery benefit mission. And they have a combat support agency mission. So the healthcare delivery benefit, whenever you hear the word benefit, then that's an entitlement. So you say, where else have I heard that word? The commissary and the exchange, right? But I don't see infantrymen in the commissary or the exchange, right? So we are the only ones who are manning an entitlement. So, So we say, well, we're training our guys. But when the surgeon is doing colonoscopies in the OR, they're looking for something to do in the OR, right? So that's not the training for war going forward. So over time, I feel like we recreated an excellent healthcare delivery team, right? A Mayo Clinic team. I love Army Medicine, but is that why we have the privilege of being in uniform, right? Are we deployable? So even as a cardiologist, right, when a cardiologist deploys, you can say, oh, look, I saved all these people from leaving because I said that chest pain is non-cardiac, non-cardiac. Do they ever come back and say, oh, well, that was so good. We'll start putting cardiologists on the MTO. No, they never do. So for me personally, I have to say, I can be a cardiologist, but I get to deploy because I'm a hospitalist or an intensivist or 
an emergency room guy or whatever, right? What is a deployment mission? We should call it out and say, how can we do this healthcare delivery benefit and be deployable? How do we do that? So if in my perfect world, healthcare delivery benefit, let's let's staff that man that the way we need to. Let's make sure people are are deployable. Where's the overlap? Where does it need to be? But let's not try to do two missions simultaneously and understaffed. And what was shown here recently, it's not just, well, if there's a war, of course, we're going to call these guys up. There was COVID and we pulled everyone out of Walter Reed, right? So it's it's any national emergency, natural disaster, whatever, you're going to pull medical out. Just what that does to the, this healthcare delivery benefit team is is tough. So Sorry, I got off on, on, a, on a tirade on that, but I feel very strongly that, that military medicine is powerful, but they must be true to their deployment mission going forward, even if it means you're not staffing the healthcare delivery benefit mission to keep your skills up. So you had an, a unique experience that most of us will not even fully understand. And I've, I've never done executive level medicine like you have, but here you are, the advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Tell me uh, what that job actually entails, and then give me a, a good story or two of behind the scenes in the Pentagon. You ever go through the Pentagon and see those tours? You know how they teach some guy to walk backwards, right? right. And he, you know, all these folks are, to me, I said, it's kind of like they're on a, a safari, right? So I'd walk, I'd be the, like the only general to walk, get my own lunch or something. So I'm walking and people would point to me, right? Oh, there's a general, right? So I feel like, Oh, there's a zebra. <laughs> Take a picture. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, I said, I felt like I, they just fought a line. I need to go jump on some private and eat them or something. It was, I never took myself seriously, but took the job seriously. The bottom line is a chairman provides the president best military advice. My job is to provide the chairman, therefore the president, best military medical advice. So while I was there, you're seeing it for the first thing. The two things that were that I was heavily involved with was the outbreak of Zika and the involvement and how how the approach should be for that. So I talked. So I'm involved with the uh, COCOM surgeons and their approach. And the other one was the move towards transgender acceptance of the acceptance of transgender troops and how it it worked through the highest levels of DOD and how that would play out. And what was interesting to me, and this was at the same time that should we have women go to ranger school and special forces school and be infantrymen and all that. And what was interesting as a broad generalization, the young troops felt, what's the big deal about transgender? And the kids are saying, you know, I'm so a person. I know somebody who is has a gender dysphoria, et cetera, et cetera. So they were desensitized to that and accepting of that, but they couldn't handle women infantrymen, infantry women. And the reverse was a case of the generals. The generals could see their daughter or granddaughter being an infantryman, but they couldn't handle the transgender idea. And there would be things like, well, we have general restrooms or, or if they're going to spend their first deployment just getting surgery. There's all these considerations that are being made to on how to address this uh, without impacting the readiness of the force, right? They were true to spirit. That was what drives it. Their mission is to ensure this country has the most effective, incompetent, and ready fighting force. So they looked at it through that lens. And it seemed like the, the politicos would always use the DOD to, to, to make cases and because they knew we would address it. 
So we are constantly faced with these types of things going forward. So take take me through a scenario. I mean, I'm I'm curious because here you're advising the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and organizing a medical plan. When Zika was hitting, the concerns were, how do we identify the 80s Egypti mosquitoes, which were all over the Southern Belt? And what are we going to do about every one of these troops? And obviously, the mosquitoes don't know insulation fences. So how does that impact the readiness? Well, first thing is, uh, first time you've heard something like this, so you're not the expert, right? It'd be crazy for you to just start making proclamations. So you find the right expert and you pull them in and you get the counsel. And so I would provide the director, which is the three-star overall of the joint staff directors, an update. And they're very precise on how you would communicate in the joint staff, how many lines it could be, et cetera, et cetera. I learned that this very tight shot group on just the essence. And the other thing I learned as a staff guy is you don't ever say what to do. You say what the risks are because a decision maker is going to have to look at the COAs and make a decision. And you need to tell them what the impact is if you go A, B, or C going forward, which is counter to what a physician would do, right? We would we would say, this is what I think you should do unless so this is what you could do. What do you want to do kind of thing, although we are moving in, in that direction. So the, with the Zika, we would put out recommendations on how much travel troops should have, if, should, if they should stay within the installation going forward. It was that kind of thing. When we thought about the different command commands, medical wasn't something they talked about initially at the chairman's level. So we worked very hard to insert medical and what that was, for instance, a casualty estimation is really a one job, right? It's the personnel job, but they would just say 50%. They would just pick a number, whereas we had some modeling that we use. So rather than shove that down and say, this is what the surgeon's doing, we came up with, with this data and we fed it to the one who received it and then, and then put it forward. So you had to know what fights to win on your own and wasn't to use a primary staff going, going forward. And then the other thing is a casualty evacuation plan going forward. So when we would talk to the chairman and he was talking to everyone, we figured we'd get one sentence in or half a paragraph in a strategy or something like that. And it was very low key, be ready and don't have your ego hurt if no one asks what you think. So I've even had the director say to me, I don't even know why we have a surgeon on the joint staff. And that, so I had that when I was a battalion surgeon, joint staff. I said, what do you think? I just run sick call, right? I'm as strategic as you are in this thinking. But I don't know that I could have done that without a series of surgeons positions from, from working at a battalion up through four-star and, and then to him to kind of know how to keep adjusting what we do and be at the right level and speak with the right vernacular that would resonate with a warfighter when their starting off position is, why do we even have you, right? Which means to me, you just stop bleeding after they bleed, as opposed to everything else we do within a health delivery system. So very interesting and distinguished career, starting from the bookends of battalion surgeon to joint surgeon. After your military career was finished, you went on to become the president and CEO of the Henry M. Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine. Tell us a little bit about that organization and, and what's the mission? What, what are you guys trying to do? Yeah, it's authorized by Congress. So we're in federal statute. 
and then established as a civilian not-for-profit organization, expressly established and authorized to advance military medicine, initially to help USU conduct research so that there are O&M, any congressional money has a time limit on it. Research, development, testing, and evaluation is two-year money. So if you're trying to conduct research, but you're limited to two-year money and you get it late, and then by the time you buy something, you're always going to do very short studies. Congress realized that. And so they, they needed a foundation, a non-Department of Defense entity, right? So it's not a matter of just being civilian. We had to be outside of DOD to then be the implementing partner for the research that was conducted by USU. And so the vision that is stated is for the benefit of the warfighters and for civilian health. And it really can be a broader scope. And, and so we work as an implementing partner from research assistant through world-renowned scientists in that regard. And we're pivoting now. We straddle two worlds. We are like a connective tissue. We advocate, educate, convene, and coordinate DOD medicine with a civilian academic industry partnership. We are heavy into tech transfer and how to help the military when allowed and possible to take uh, this early discoveries, IPs, and then transition it using dual-use commercialization to get it back to the service member. And that's, that's kind of the, the big mission. We've been doing it for, for 40 years now. So what is the big distinction? Why do you make the distinction of saying it's congressionally authorized, non-for-profit? What is that? Is that what you just described? Yeah, yeah. So, so when I say congressionally authorized, that means HCF is mentioned in federal law that we're creating. Nonprofits aren't just named by in federal law, right? So they say, HCF, you will work with USU to help facilitate the advancement of military medicine. USU, you'll work with HCF to, to do this. No other company is, you know, Boeing isn't named, right? Nonprofits otherwise are not named. So there's, to me, I say that because there's a unique association that Congress intended to help us help military medicine. And within that, our board directors, our ex officio directors are the Hask and Sask leadership. So we have strong ties to Congress and strong ties to DOD in that regard. So that sounds a little bit like the Krebs cycle, but not not completely. But just to make it totally simple, what is something that the HJF Foundation does that military can't do? Or what, what do they do that may not otherwise be possible within military medicine? So a lot of times, uh, military medicine is constrained by budget and strength or personnel, whatever. So we'll augment. So there are many centers, USU, where there's only three military and 50 HJF employees to oversee a surgical center or the Mirtha Cancer Research Program. The research work that's going on overseas that is big on HIV-related research might be one military and 100 HJF employees. So we are, in that regard, the implementing partner in getting the work done. We have scientists as well that partner to conduct the research as well. So maybe it's we have capability as a civilian to, for advanced development, or let's say if you guys invented something, right, in your University of Michigan, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to start a small business. And you're going to be faculty and you're going to start working this, this small business to get this thing to grow. It's, and then the university gets some royalties, but it's your company growing. Military can't do that, right? You can't leave USU and start a small business. So we help them through a partnership. We do the patents for them. And then there's all these jewels lying on the beach that just sit there. 
So we can go out and talk to venture capital. We can talk to other partners. We can help facilitate an incubator and accelerator to say, hey, is this product interests you from a, a civilian aspect and it's kind of de-risked in the work that's already done? Is this something you're interested in developing? If you develop it, it commercialize it and now get it FDA approved and it's now available, the Army, Navy, Air Force, they don't care that you made it. They just want it available. So, and they would like a family discount to buy it back. So still prebish, but hopefully that's a little closer to how, how we can help move research, which is very complicated, especially in the medical world, because uh, you're not just building a weapon, right? You're, you're trying to get it FDA approved and they have their own gates and challenges and, and, and what have you. This whole research space is, is unbelievable. It's so large. We thought we were complicated in just healthcare delivery. The research space is unbelievably complex. So tell us your most memorable clinical experience. Uh, this is a, a little uh, a sad one, really. So I was a, the chief of cardiology. I'm from Hawaii. I remember growing up that I had an uncle who was in the Korean War, and he was just different, right? Uh, now I know it was PTSD, but he was just different to me. And he didn't say much, kind of quiet individual, but he was a, he was a veteran. So I'm growing up as a young student and physician. I don't know if you guys did this, but we would you you kind of objectify patients and the gallows humor, all those things you do just for survival, right? Because of what we do is so intense that that's a coping mechanism. So we group people, right? And so I don't know if you ever use this term, but we used to say VABs, right? We just call all these folks. And then I was led to believe VABs, did it to themselves. They smoked too much. They drank too much. They did drugs. And now you're dealing, certainly as an internist, dealing with end-stage diseases of something that was self-inflicted. And so I remember that. So that's my background. So I'm at Tripler. I'm just walking through the halls. And I was going to say hello to my uncle, who is an inpatient. And as I get closer, I see that there's a code going on. And they're coding my uncle. And, and then I heard people talk about the VAB, right? That, uh, that object that I was very familiar with, right? At that point, I said, that VAB is my uncle. And it's like, I'm embarrassed to say that. And I wish I could tell you I saved some dude's life or whatever is my most memorable clinical experience. But that is back to human frailty, right? That what one does for survival I've never seen a nurse do this, by the way, but doctors do this all the time. We, we, we just pigeonhole people. I got, a, I got a left heart in room three or whatever, something like that. But to then, to be at the receiving end, even indirectly, of what an objectified patient, dehumanized patient, it kind of bore a hole in my heart that very sad that I was one of those guys that had done that up to that point. And so any chance I can help young people to not do that, I strive towards that. So when the history books are written 50, 100 years from now, what would you want your legacy in military medicine to be? I want people to know that I was a loyal and dedicated army officer first, that I was a leader and a physician. And that was how I contributed to the army. But I'd also like them to know that I inspired and encouraged others to greatness. That's important to me that it wasn't about me, it was about the army, that it was about those at the tip of the spear, our nation's 
oldest children, youngest adults that we have the privilege of wearing the uniform to help them. And certainly in this current job to help them be as agile, as resilient, as survivable as possible. And then finally, I'd like them to know that I love the army. I love my country. I love my wife and family and I love my God. Well, we've been speaking with retired Army Major General, Dr. Joseph Carvalho on Warlock's podcast. Sir, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.